All right, well, I mentioned last week that I, um, I used to do a lot of creek fishing. And uh, these, were, these were very small creeks. Um, I think some of you call them cricks around here, but in Missouri we call them creeks. And uh, you needed to wade rather than use some kind of boat. And we would, uh, we would often fish in the winter in Missouri, even with snow on the ground. So that meant wearing waders. Every creek fisherman knows that when you wade in streams, especially if it is swift at all, you better be moving upstream. I never was one to keep trying to catch the same fish over and over, and so often I would cover several miles of river on foot, only fishing certain spots, and I was always moving upstream. It's kind of hard to imagine this if you've never experienced it, but if you wade downstream, you are simply going to get dunked. Your waders are going to fill up with water, and you are going to die of hypothermia, especially in January in Missouri. What happens when you wade downstream is the water flow picks up your feet and you get going too fast. You're going to slip on a rock. You're going to step in a hole. The current will take care of the rest. Conversely, if you stumble going upstream, it's pretty easy to catch yourself because the current actually helps prop you up. But going downstream, you just get swept away if you lose your footing. It'll happen every time. So as every creek fisherman knows, what you do is you work your way upstream, and then when you're done fishing, you walk back down the bank, get back to your truck or whatever, not in the water. But wait, have you ever tried to walk upstream? It's harder, right? Yeah, it's a lot harder. The easy and quicker way is downstream. People who didn't know any better would automatically go downstream, wouldn't they? And they'd be looking at those going upstream, thinking, what a moron. But metaphorically speaking, why do the downstream people assume their way is better? Well, because it's more natural to go downstream. Beyond this, most people define truth by consensus. Have you noticed this? If the majority of a population believes something, that thing begins to be defined as truth. To one degree or another, we all do this. What do most people think? What do most people do? What do most experts say? What do most scientists believe? What do most historians think happened? Theologians. The mainstream must be right, right? And everyone else is called a radical and thought of as probably foolish. Jesus, by the way, was such a radical that they killed him. They couldn't abide his different way of looking at things or his different way of living. He just wouldn't go with the flow. Oh, and also, by the way, it was the religious people who killed him. Always good to remember. So anyway, the few folks who are going upstream not only have a harder go of it, but they've got everyone else saying, hey, dummy. It's a lot easier going this way. Look at all the rest of us. We must be right. And there's like a whole group of them going down, maybe all your friends. And they look cool. And they seem happy. 
And, uh, you know, it's like there's this whole confluence of canoes and um, they're just floating down the stream. And they have beer. And they start hollering over to tell me how great it is to be in their boats. And uh, some of them begin to make fun of me. Does this sound like a real story? <laughs> Maybe it is. But others are more sincere and... Uh, they really want to help me see that what I'm doing makes no sense. Meanwhile, I'm giving it all I've got just to try to get up to the next pool while I can, where I can rest a little and, and, and just pray that even just one fish will rise. But that's when I remember that I know something they don't know. I know where they're headed, and I know where I'm headed. Particularly in the Midwest from whence I came, the downstream end of a river is not really a pretty sight. I'm talking about like where a river eventually flows into a lake or the Gulf. They call it a delta. It's basically mud. You won't find any resorts there, I don't think. What you'll find is a great big mess of debris and trash and silt and driftwood, and it's not a good place to be. The water down there is typically dirty and ugly and yuck. Maybe it was easy going, wading downstream, but the end is pretty much hell. You know what's at the end of the upstream journey? A spring. Follow almost any river far enough up and you'll find a spring. I love springs. Crystal clear, cool water bubbling out of beautiful dark colored rocks with ferns. The only place we had ferns in Missouri. If there were ferns, it was a spring. Maybe a trout playing in the pool. It's just, where I'm from, there's no more beautiful place than a spring. That's the destination. I mean, that is the most beautiful place. The most beautiful places are springs. It's refreshing. You could stay there forever. Next Sunday, we will finish our series covering the Sermon on the Mount. And as we near the end, let's remember where it all began. Remember that Matthew tells us that the closest disciples of Jesus drew near and sat at his feet to learn. They were submissive. They wanted to be taught by him. By now, though, he said many things to test their faith in him. See, who would be willing to walk upstream with him? And who would go with the flow and follow everybody else. We know from other passages that many times after Jesus would teach, the crowd would get smaller. Here he explains that this is actually what he expects. People will gather, they will come and see, and most will leave over things he says. Let's pick it up in chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus continues his sermon on the mount. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What is Jesus really trying to say here in this passage? I mean, honestly, he's making one simple point in this, I think. And is he talking to people who consider themselves atheists? No. Is he talking to those who admit unbelief? No. Is he talking to agnostics who would say, maybe God is real, maybe not? No. Jesus is talking to people like you and me. People who would come to church to hear the preacher talk about God. People who consider themselves on their way to heaven. And what is he saying to people like us? He's telling us to make sure. He's telling us to double check. And let me tell you something. There are millions of people who call themselves Christians today who desperately need to hear this message from Christ. I can't help but believe that at least a few of those millions are here today. In this very room, someone's eternal destiny may even depend somehow upon actually hearing this message from Jesus. Understand that this is not a passage about how to be saved. This isn't nuts and bolts. It's not a passage about, you know, step-by-step process to be saved. It's about making sure that you are saved. Jesus talks about the necessity of going through the right gateway, of becoming a fruitful tree, and of actually knowing Him as Savior. At each of those points, eternal life and eternal death proves to be our destination. This text from Jesus today is about proof, three proofs in particular, which form a kind of circle in that they are interconnected and inseparable. A circle of proofs. This is about evidence of salvation in a person's life. One cannot really bear good fruit if he hasn't entered the right gateway in the first place. And one cannot enter the right gateway by any other means than coming to know Jesus through faith. If you're using your listening guide or taking notes, you might want to jot this down. Just make a circle. Or something sort of like a circle, if you can't draw like me. Just make a circle and label it circle of proofs. Got that much? And we're going to turn this into three arrows that connect with each other simply by doing something like that. You know, we can put one here too. Yeah. Okay. With me? And let me remember what I'm writing now. All right. Based on this passage, this is, gonna, this is the end before the beginning. This is the whole big picture, okay? Circle of proofs according to Jesus. Right road. Which connects to right results. Which connects to 
right relationship. IP. <laughs> so, just something to remember. Maybe make a note there. Just remember that this is not a lesson on how to be saved. It's just not Jesus' goal here. But a lesson on how to know that you're saved. As I titled the message, Make Sure. And that's what we want to let Jesus help us do today. So taking this text in three parts, let's unpack these three ways that we can look into our lives and examine our own situation before God. First of all, Jesus says, make sure that you take the right road. Make sure that you take the right road. Let's review the first two verses. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way, the road, is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Here it is important to understand how Jesus later develops this idea by explaining that he himself is the gate or the doorway to salvation. For instance, let's look at John 10, 7 through 9, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So understand that when Jesus talks about the need to go through the narrow gate or the small door, he's talking about himself. And the imagery was poignant to his first century audience because they all knew about shepherding. They knew that a good shepherd would bring his sheep into a makeshift pen at night by guiding him through a gate that he had made. And then the shepherd himself would sit in the gate to guard against predators. So the shepherd would let his sheep um, follow him through the gate, but he would not allow anyone or anything other than his sheep to come in. Just as a shepherd used his body as the gate or the doorway for his sheep, so Jesus functions as the gate or doorway for those who know him. Notice also that in our text, the gate comes at the beginning of the way. This is critical. In, in a gate, we are talking about a way in. The way into what? The way in to the road. See, to get onto the right road, you have to enter the right gate. Or we might say you'll need to take the right exit. We do know that the gate leads to a pathway or a journey or a road because Jesus goes on to say that those who enter the broader, more common gate wind up walking a broader, more common road leading to destruction. And he says those who enter the smaller gate walk a narrow road leading to life. But listen, the idea we need to get here is that the beginning point, the gate, is all important. If you expect to ever be on the right road, and even more importantly, if you want to get to the right place, the end of the road, you'll need to come through the narrow gate, after which you will find yourself on the narrow road leading to life. But understand that if you haven't done that, 
If you haven't done that, it's as if you chose to go through the broader gate with everyone else. Jesus assumes that's where everyone starts. A broader road, which does not even, a broader gate, which doesn't even seem like a gate. It's so big you can't even see the borders of it. It doesn't even seem like a gate. It's just like automatic. So huge. You're walking down this crowded path that leads only to death. The path that's the most natural. The one everybody's on. And it seems natural to every single human. Don't miss this. Listen, Jesus is not primarily challenging us to be different than the world in this passage. That is in there as a result. But the direct command here is to get on the right road by entering the right gate. See, this teaching is not primarily about you having the willpower to stand out in the crowd or break out of cultural norms. Jesus does explain that you will be in the minority as you go upstream, but he's more concerned that you actually enter the right gate or take the right road in the first place. After all, there are a few and only a few who find it. That's chilling. I mean, God came all the way down here to say that. You know what I'm saying? You better deal with it. There are only a few who find it. Jesus wants that to be you. So again, Jesus is saying, you'll find yourself on the right path if you go through the right gate in the first place. But if you don't go through the right gate, no matter how hard you try to avoid it, you'll just keep finding yourself back on the road to destruction. You'll just keep winding up right there with everybody else. Jam-packed bumper to bumper on what seems more like a parking lot than a road. Is that you? Do you keep winding up on the wrong road? Listen, if so, that probably means you never actually entered the right gate in the beginning. When it comes to your own salvation, you need to make sure you took the right road by going through the narrow gate that few find. Jesus is the gate to eternal life. You know, St. Peter's not the gate. He doesn't have the keys. Jesus is the gate and he holds the keys. As he said in another place, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. By the way, if you look up the context of that verse, you'll see that it's precisely about getting into heaven at the end of the road. See, the only way to enter the eternal sheepfold is through Jesus because he is the gate. He is the door, the way in. Let's get real. In places like America, there's far too much presumption when it comes to salvation. I mean, if you go to unreached people groups in other countries, you know, you may not deal with this as much. People that haven't heard the gospel. But here, the average person actually considers himself or herself on the way to heaven. For one reason or another, most of them do not know Jesus Christ as Savior or as Lord. Their way is broad. It leads to destruction. And listen, nobody would stay on that road if they had any idea where it leads. That's part of what Jesus is saying. The majority of people don't know what gate they entered and they don't know what road they're on. But what about church attenders? Maybe we're, you know, I mean... 
that's, that's fairly narrow, right, already. I mean, actually, yeah, it is very narrow, especially in the Northwest. We're about 4% of the population, you and I, if you attend church regularly, 4%. Fairly narrow. But are most church attenders on the narrow way? And let's just think about our own church for a moment. That's always fun. It gets uncomfortable, right? Well, how do you think the audience felt at this point during the Sermon on the Mount? If I'm preaching the Word today, you'll feel like they felt. And so let me continue. We probably have about 130 men, women, and children attending worship on average at, uh, at Go Church. And that's growing, but that's about where we're at. How many of them have actually entered the narrow gate of Christ? And how many of them, if asked, would say something more like, well, I come from a Christian home and I've, kind of, I've just always been a Christian. Or, quote, I've been baptized. Or, quote, I'm a good person. I try to be like Jesus. We usually have a third or so of our congregation in the children's area each Sunday, over 30 every week, sometimes about 40. Um, and so... You know, right now, maybe there's only about 80 or so in this room. So how many of the people in this room right now have really and truly entered the narrow gate? Are you part of the few? I'll tell you this. Someday we're going to find out. There's little doubt in my mind that some of you have never entered the narrow gate. I'm glad you're here. Maybe you'd admit it. And if so, I'm glad you came anyway, and I hope you continue to come. But what I'm even more concerned about today are those who would say, of course I'm saved. But who are not willing to go back and make sure it really is true. Listen, based on a ton of the New Testament, I would say to you today, never be afraid to double check. Even if you're a pastor, <laughs> never be afraid to look at the circle of proof and think earnestly about your salvation. Most of us aren't as religious as a lot of the audience Jesus was talking to that day. It's just too important. Jesus would say to you today, make sure. Make sure you took the right road. And listen, the right road or gateway is personal faith in the identity and work of Jesus Christ. Sincere belief in the Son of God and what He did on the cross and through His resurrection is the right place to start. Jesus is the gate. Not church attendance, not being good enough, not growing up in the church, not religious practice, not knowing a lot of stuff, not being able to quote things in the Bible, not even baptism. Have you come to Jesus in the sincerity of your heart to receive grace and forgiveness and indeed to be changed from the inside out? Born again, as the Bible says. If you're not sure, make sure today. His arms are wide open. To take the right road, enter through the right gate. Jesus. By the way, make sure also that your faith is not in your own faith or your own choices. 
There's a huge mystery in terms of our need to choose. And choice is at least implied in our text. But let me also be clear that ultimately you don't save yourself. And you don't keep yourself saved. A deeper question is this, has Jesus saved you? If you entered the right gate or have taken the right road, rest assured, he has. Secondly, make sure you are seeing the right results. Jesus says, beware of the false prophets who come, into you, come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Here it becomes even more important to remember that Jesus is not telling people how to be saved. But he is telling them how to make sure they are saved. As I've worded it, in order to make sure you are saved, you need to make sure you are seeing the right results. Fruit in this sense equals the results of your salvation in Christ. Jesus is saying if there are no results, that means you never entered the right gate. And that's why I'm calling this a circle of proofs. Each proof is connected and dependent upon the others. So the larger context here is that by your own fruits, you can be assured. But the smaller context of these verses as Jesus gets kind of parenthetical here is specifically about how to recognize false prophets or false teachers who would come in among us and lead people astray. This means that we are not only to, uh, we're not only being told how to do a self-inventory, the larger context, but here in this parentheses, we're also being told how to take inventory of others, particularly in the case of who we would allow to teach or preach in the church. You might remember the message a few weeks ago, to judge or not to judge. The fact is that Jesus tells us how to know whether someone is, truly belongs in the sheepfold. There are ways to recognize wolves and, and imposters. Now, while I would stop short of personally declaring summary judgment on whether any individual is saved or not, Jesus does give us a guideline for how to know exactly that. This comes into play, especially in terms of those who should be allowed to teach or lead in our church and also those whose teachings we might employ through the recommendation, recommendation of books or, or the various studies which we might endorse or facilitate. Obviously, the teaching of those whose fruit would demonstrate a lack of salvation should not be finding their way into our churches. And we should identify such false prophets when necessary, lest others be led astray. However, on that point, partly because of the internet, I believe the church at large has gotten completely out of hand. Sometimes this has been called the discernment movement, but I think it's often more destructive than discerning. And we destroy our own house out of jealousy and arrogance and often ignorance. In short, in discerning false teachers, we should use the criteria set forth by Christ rather than our own. If we use the criteria, for example, that we can dismiss a teacher or leader over a few quotes taken out of context, how is that the criteria of Christ? In fact, how is that ever a criteria in the New Testament? 
Remember when Peter stood up for Paul, referring to his writings as Holy Scripture, even as he acknowledged that some of those writings could be um, confusing at times? Yeah, imagine if the criteria... By the way, when Peter said that, he obviously was responding to critics who didn't think Paul should be listened to anymore because of some things he'd said. Imagine if the criteria of the so-called discernment crowd is used, was used, that's used, that they're using, the criteria they're using today was used um, as they were putting together the New Testament. As it was being written. You know, uh, the book of James would not be in your Bible. I can tell you that. If we were using their criteria. Honestly, I don't know if we'd have anything left. If we dismiss the sum total of everything one author of Scripture said over a few of the other things that he said. How arrogant we have become in the Christian community. We're greatly reminiscent of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, perhaps now more than ever. Oh, it feels good, though. I'm about to chase just... No. I mean, it's already, I've already got a long enough rabbit right here in my notes. I don't need to chase another rabbit on the side of this rabbit. So, example. Let me give you an example. And this is, where, this is the dangerous part, right? For me. If we use the criteria of Christ, that, that Christ is calling, um, if we use his criteria for calling out false prophets, false teachers, I do not believe that Rick Warren or Beth Moore would make the list. Since they're certainly flawed uh, and probably wrong on a few things, their lives have borne more good spiritual fruit than everyone else in this room combined. And I do believe their fruit is real. Some of it's been born in me and my wife. Fruit that made a difference. Right results. Billy Graham is another good example. Believe it or not, many now defame even him. And I know I mention this often, but I just can't stand it. When God's good and faithful servants are torn down by others who are judgmental and arrogant know-it-alls. And who are basically basing their assessment not on personal experience or a lack of fruit but rather on quotes or video clips taken out of context. I promise you, I promise you that you could string together bits and pieces of my sermons over the years and portray me as a horrendous and damnable false teacher. All it takes is a little effort from someone wishing to destroy my reputation. Thankfully, I'm not worth the effort. You know what's really happening? Good people are being lumped together with bad people. Listen, Rick Warren is no Joel Osteen, okay? And you know what? Joel Osteen is no Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland. Those last two are full-on false teachers, okay? For sure, I have no problem saying that, partly because of bad fruit. But just because you saw a video that lumped all those guys together as if they're the same does not mean it was fair to do so. Guess what? Even good teachers get off a little sometimes. 
especially when you preach 52 sermons a year or whatever. And some get further off than others, and some are so far off they should be referred to as false teachers or false prophets. But brother, you better be loath to pin that title on a man or a woman of God who has borne an abundance of good fruit. Where's the love? Maybe a little respect. For brothers and sisters who have lived a life of faithfulness to Christ, even though the constant uh, attacks were there. Where's the love? If there's more fruit than it can even be quantified. Have you looked at the fruit, by the way? Have you looked? Have you done research on that or just some quotes that you thought meant that he believed some things that were wrong? Have you looked at the fruit? Do you really know? I do. It's unreal. You know. All right. Dead, cleaned, gutted, cooked, ate. After all that, I just want to, I want to direct you back to self-inventory, which I do believe is the larger context of all these verses put together. We're so good at judging fruit in others, but we need to spend more of our time checking out our own fruit uh, uh, in our own lives or the lack thereof. In order to be sure of your salvation, you need to make sure you're seeing the right results. And notice that in verse 21, Jesus boils it down to actually doing the will of God. So all this about trees and fruits not meant to say that anyone who does a random good act or whatever good works must actually be saved, but rather Jesus says, he who does the will of my Father shows that he or she is saved. This can be seen even more clearly in the following verses where people who did all kinds of good things supposedly for God will nonetheless be barred from heaven. Why? Because they did those things in their own strength for their own reasons and not as a result of knowing and following the will of God. Now, again, don't get confused. Jesus is not saying that if you do the good things God wants you to do, you will be saved because of that. He's saying that if you have truly entered the narrow gate, you will truly be walking the narrow road, which involves doing the will of God on earth, which means bearing good fruit, seeing the, rest, the, the right results, which is ultimately expansion of his kingdom, which is what we've been talking about this entire sermon series, or as I've also put it, bringing heaven down to earth. So what does all this mean practically? Well, I would say for starters that it means an awful lot of people who claim to be Christians are actually not. How do I know? Fruitlessness. Or worse, bad fruit. And that's an important point to notice as well. Jesus is not only talking about good things uh, coming, coming out of your life. He's also saying that if you really know them, bad things will not generally be coming out of your life. We can see this also at the very end of the passage where he sends people away, calling them, you who practice lawlessness. So if lawlessness, or we might say blatant sinfulness, is the kind of fruit that's coming out of your life, you need to stop kidding yourself about where you are headed for eternity. Too harsh? Jesus said such trees are good for nothing but the fire. How many of us are fooling ourselves? Sometimes that keeps me up at night. How many think they can get by with living in the flesh, following the ways of the world, still hope for heaven? Unrepentant, so-called belief in Jesus. See, we knock the Catholics for this kind of thinking, but we Protestants are just as guilty. Maybe some Catholics think they can live however they want and still consider themselves saved because of holy water or because the priest says so or simply because they're Catholic or maybe even because they believe in Jesus, but we do the same thing. 
We have exchanged one set of rituals and indulgences for another as we continue to think our free ticket to heaven absolves us from bad behavior. But Jesus puts a big fat check on that if we will listen. Jesus says, before you reach the final judgment, you better make sure you're doing the right things. Not to earn salvation, but to make your salvation sure. As Paul put it, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Listen, if your journey with Christ just barely got started and then you went back to your old path, then maybe you never really entered through the narrow gate in the first place. Maybe you need to start over and enter through the right door this time by true faith in Christ, which involves repentance and a spiritual rebirth. That is a new life conversion of your heart. I'm not saying you need to get saved again. There's no such thing. True, saving, heaven-guaranteeing faith is not a repeatable thing. If it's real, it sticks. If it doesn't stick, it wasn't real. So did it stick? Heaven and hell is no joke. According to the litmus test Jesus gives us involving good or bad fruit, where are you headed? Where does your fruit say you're going? If spiritual results in your life don't send the message that you're getting a little closer to heaven all the time, you may be getting a little closer to an eternity the Bible describes as torment. If you want to make sure that you're truly saved, make sure you're doing the right things. Third, most important, make sure you have the right relationship. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, before I go on, let's establish one very important truth. Who is it that makes the destination determination here? Who makes the call? as to whether you are in or you are out. Who exactly decides if you go up or you go down? Jesus does. Jesus. Do you see how true it is that Jesus is the gate? The circle completes itself. Listen, you have to go through Him or you're not getting in. And folks, He only lets in the ones He knows. See, who you know is everything when it comes to entry into heaven. Just listen to these incredible words again from Jesus. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's all right there again, the whole circle. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. True belief is in knowing and following Jesus. And when you truly know and follow him, you truly believe in him. And when you have this kind of faith relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no undoing it because Jesus is God. And by the fact of, that he is greater than all, you can know that he will not allow you to slip through his fingers. Now, looking back at our text in Matthew, what's the reason so many will be rejected by Christ? It's because he does not know them. He does not know them. Those people today think there are many paths to heaven. 
This is one of the most popular ideas of our time. That there are many roads to paradise, and so when we get there, we'll find out all of these other people with other beliefs that they made it to. Remember the show Lost? Who wants to remember that mess, right? Oh, I was into it. After six seasons of mysterious loose ends, what did it all wind up meaning that basically everybody gets to go to heaven? That was the message. And this has become the common understanding of most people today. But how does that idea square with what Jesus says here? He will say to many people who thought they were in, depart from me, I never knew you. Is this some generic God saying this? No, this is Jesus Christ who still bears the scars of a Roman cross in his hands and feet. This is Jesus, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, crucified, buried, and risen in Jerusalem. This is Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, firstborn from the dead, King of kings and Lord of lords, God in the flesh, the only one, who now holds the keys to death and is the gatekeeper of heaven. This Jesus, who we must come to know, is not a generic God with different names around the world, who in one form or another is believed in by most. No, this is the God who became a man without ever ceasing to be God. This is Jesus Christ, known only by a few who walk a narrow road. And it is 100% certain that those who do not know him will not get through him. You are among the privileged few this morning. You are privileged, chosen, I would say, blessed to hear the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God, and faith comes by hearing, Romans 10. You have been invited into the greatest secret, one which we are commanded to proclaim to anyone who will listen, the mystery of the gospel that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. He is the only one who can save you, and He only saves those He knows. So where does this message find you today? You've probably heard the question before, but maybe now you see the relevance in this. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Him? When we sing songs to Jesus, do you sing to Him? Some people are afraid to pray to Jesus. Don't be. He's God. If he's not God. We're all blasphemers. But Jesus is God, and so you can talk to him, and you can listen to his still, small voice. That is the Spirit of Christ sent into the hearts of all who believe, and you can tell him that you love him. And you can thank him for what he's done. And you can ask him for help. You can know Jesus, and He can know you. When you face the final judgment, or when you're standing at the gate and Jesus is there, what will you say to Him? Will you be like those who said, hey, I've been good, a lot better than most people. Hey, look what we did in your name. Christian, I called myself a Christian, Christ, little Christ, literally. In your name, will that be the kind of thing that you say? 
Or instead, will you look into his wonderful eyes and see someone you know? Someone you love. You can't explain it. Don't even know what he looks like. But you love him. And you know he loves you. Someone you've spent a lifetime getting to know through prayer and Bible study and knowing what he has to say in your life through songs of worship, by serving alongside him in the church and in the world. Will you and Jesus lock eyes and then embrace with tears of joy like old friends? Or will Jesus look at you and say, who the heck are you? Maybe you think that's a crass way to put it, but it communicates, I don't think I can be any more harsh than depart from me. I never knew you. I mean, common vernacular, get out of here. Will you see a friend and savior in Jesus or will you see an angry stranger? Your eternity depends on your answer to that question. As with all relationships, knowing Jesus has to start somewhere. It starts by going through the gate. The gate is belief. The gate is faith that leads to repentance, or, or we could say repentant faith. You go through the gate the moment you respond to the Savior and put your faith in Him to save you from your sin and your sinfulness and your hopelessness. Have you ever done that? Have you ever walked through the narrow gate? I'm sure there are some exceptions, people that lose memory of when they were young. But generally speaking, you know when you went through this gate. Be sure. If you're not sure, let me help you do that. I'm going to do that as a group, but if you need more personal one-on-one, I'm available. All you got to do is email me, talk to me, but pray with me now. And if you want to just do it right now, we don't know what's going to happen in five minutes. And today, you want to make sure you've gone through the gate. It's not specific magic words. It's something that needs to happen in your heart. And I can just guide you to pray a prayer, to say yes to Jesus, And it would go something like this. Just tell him, I know I'm a sinner. I'm not just okay with you by default. Just tell him something like that. I'm a sinner. Woe is me. I believe that you came down to this earth as a man and died on a cross. I believe it. I put my trust in what you did on that cross. I put my trust in Jesus on the cross to pay the price for my sin. I turn away from my sin and turn to him. I've been walking away from him. Now today I turn and walk towards him. 
Be my Savior. Save me from my sin. Change my heart from the inside out. Let me be like a new person. Lord, help me walk the right road, have the right results. And today I want to start that right relationship with you. Come into my life. I surrender. I, I, just, I just pray today that you would just allow the cross and what Jesus did to be applied to me in my life. I receive your gift, your gift of grace, the forgiveness you're offering through Jesus. I receive it today. I just tell God, thank you. He already did the hard part. It's just a moment of faith on your part, and the rest is... It's a walk. It's the road. Just thank God. Angels in heaven are rejoicing. Today is the day of your salvation. If you've had repentant faith today, faith that turns away from sin and turns to Jesus and trusts in Him, you can know that you've gone through the gate. You can trust Him with the rest. God, I pray for anyone here that's made that decision. There is a road there is a road. There is a road. We're just talking about the gate at this moment, but there's a road. Help them to walk out the road. Step one being baptism. And all the other things that amount to a relationship with you in this life and serving you. Thank you, God, for working in our lives. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.